Welcome to Karate in the Garage. I'm Corey Cope. I'm Freddie Woff. Ooh, I always like a good number two. I just took one. Sweet. <laughs> you know what's great about this movie? So many people don't know it's a number two until they see it. Yes, because the original uh, film's title and the number two do not appear anywhere on the poster or anywhere in this movie. Not only is that this is the only movie we're covering this month that's like that, where it doesn't have a two or the original title in the movie, it's also super rare because all of the, the thing that comes to the studio system is it's all about promotion. And it's the, the marketing team's going to be like, wait, we can't do what now? It's a sequel. We can't do what? Right. And I think the only time, I think the closest thing is we were just talking about how James Bond movies never had any true sequels until the Daniel Craig movies. And of course, they don't ever have a scene in part two or anything in those either. And one of the reasons why we mentioned James Bond is Stuart Baird, who cut the, a couple of those. They cut Skyfall. And I want to see, he, did he cut Quantum Solace also? No, Casino. Casino. casino right? Yeah, Casino Royale. Like, isn't that weird to do, the, to do those two right? bookended? And the reason Stuart Baird is being mentioned is because Andrew Davis is out from The Fugitive and in comes Stuart Baird in the director's chair. Hot off of executive decision at Warner Brothers. <laughs> Hot off the (laughs) hot off of executive decision. Also out in this, of course, is Harrison Ford, and in comes Wesley Snipes. And for this movie, which is far more of an action picture than The Fugitive is, oh yeah, he's a perfect choice. And Wesley Snipes fucking kills in this role, dude. I love the fact that he was willing to take on a role where he wasn't going to be the focal point. I love that. Even though, because again, it's not the fugitive part two, it's U.S. Marshall. So the focus the whole time is Tommy Lee Jones and his team. Right. We, we have a perfect, we have a, like a perfect three-way split in this movie, right? We've got yes. three lead, we've, we've got three lead actors at the time. Well, I mean, maybe RDJ wasn't because he, he hadn't quite come back yet from, you know, he was in the middle at the end of his second comeback in this. This was right before he exploded again <laughs> or, or I, somewhere in there. We were, we were a little while from him becoming, changing the whole studio system landscape by, by becoming Iron Man. We're a few years off, more than a few years off from that. But yeah, he's, I think it's definitely the one, this is part of that rebound that eventually leads to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Right. And Zodiac. And of course, Iron Man. But yeah, Stuart Bear has only directed three movies, and uh, we mentioned one of them already. And after this, in 2002, he'll direct Star Trek Nemesis, which I believe, is that the, is that the last of the f- next generation? I think that's the last of them And before we got the, uh, and then we had to wait seven years to get the uh, the J.J. Abrams right. rebirth of Star Trek. So there you go. But this one, just like we mentioned a few moments ago, Tommy Lee Jones and his team are the focus in this and everybody is back for this one. Oh, yeah. Everybody, uh, every one of his team is back with this. And, and, you know, do you need to see Fugitive before you watch this? No, 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 it doesn't matter. No, that's the beauty of it. Well, it's that rare studio movie where it's a sequel and you just, you have no need to see the original because it's not about that. It's a different storyline just following the same team. Right. I think that, you know, part of the the weird, uh, I don't want to say maligned history of this movie. I, I think part of it is because people compare it to The Fugitive. Like if you just take this movie, this is a movie that could totally stand alone, uh, like you just said, 
without ever having seen the fugitive. But I think a lot of people are just, you know, married to, you know, to, why isn't Harrison Ford in it? Well, you know, it's just, and it doesn't, but it doesn't require, that's the beauty. I honestly thought we were going to get another movie, another Gerard movie, Sam Gerard movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it, you know, but I guess, you know, not to be, but uh, this movie doesn't require you to watch the fugitive, which is great because, but, but you should, but I'm going to go back and watch the fugitive after watching it. And the reason why I think one of the reasons why Wesley Snipes works so well in this movie, I mean, he had a nice 1998, man. He had this and he had his introduction to the world as blade. It gets crazy to think this is the same year that these both, both these movies came out and talk about two very diverse roles And Wesley, man. I, I think it's, Usually when you, especially at this point in his career, he is, there's a certain pride that comes from, you know, being the lead actor, being the guy on the poster. Ironically, he is, there's only two people on the poster, Tommy Lee Jones, who fits the whole length of the poster. And Wesley Snipes has a small little box of his face in there because he's still a selling point. Ironically, I think it's funny that they show the train, him walking across the train on the, uh, on the poster, even though it's just, it's, what does that represent? Like, 20 seconds of screen time, if that, when he's on the L. If that, yeah, totally. <laughs> well, I was going to say, it's it's kind of a, to me, it was kind of a nod to the train sequence from The Fugitive. And it was also a nod to, uh, you know, I think anytime you shoot in Chicago, man, you got to show somebody on the top of the L, Code yeah. of Silence, yeah. Above the Law, yeah. <laughs> both directed by Andrew Davis. So maybe those, maybe that was somebody's nod to Andy Davis. You know, if, just that, cause I'm, dude, they hold him sitting on the train, you know, it's the train's moving away from Jared. They hold that for, you know, for what, like you said, 20 seconds. Yeah. And he's crisscross applesaucing it, just sitting there looking, yeah. looking back, look at like Gerard, like. I was waiting for him to wave. Uh, it was funny too, because the, there's so much about this movie that you're waiting for them to constantly, and, and it, it, it's only on first viewing. You don't, you don't usually do this after that. But you're waiting for those those single line moments and stuff, things that you heard. And, you know, I didn't do it. I don't care. <laughs> that that whole exchange in the first movie, just before Harrison Ford jumps into the drink, you don't get any of those moments in this, which is good because it's just, it's a different movie. And I, I like the fact that they they don't mention anything. They just keep going for it. And and uh, like we mentioned, his team in this is so good. You know, Joey Pants is back. Tanya Richardson Jackson, she's, I love her. I wish she was in more stuff. Me too, man. The the one guy who, you, you, I only, I can't remember what other things that I know him from, right? But the fuck is Noah's name? Newman? Newman. Oh, Tom Wood? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, dude, I didn't realize Tom, I, he's an under siege. Like, so this is like his third go around with, with Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, yeah, yeah. Speaking of uh, Andrew Davis, <laughs> right? Right? Yeah, totally. The funny thing is like with Newman and he's such a likable character. He's, he's the youngest guy in the team. And, and if you remember, I'm going to make the comparison the, in the original fugitive, he's brand new to the team. Right. When we meet them, when they're first doing the, they're the warrant servants in the beginning, very beginning of the movie. And he's so wonderful in this. And as, as, as everybody, it's like every time you're on the screen, you're like, yes, yes. And it, like you noted earlier, this is an ensemble movie. This isn't a, this is not, a Harrison Ford movie with other people in it. Right. This is, and it's not even a Tommy Lee Jones movie with other people in it. No. It's an ensemble movie across the board. Right. 
It's funny. Like I was going to say, you know, I was going to say if this movie was made 10 years earlier, uh, Tom Wood, Noah Newman is actually played by Judge Reinhold. No, <laughs> I mean, he, he, cause he's kind of like, he's, he's very Billy from Beverly Hills cop, you know, he's, you know, right there from the opening scene, which that opening sequence, man, holy shit, dude. I, because I hadn't seen the movie in so long. I, I was like, God, what, you know, when he, when he's like, I just want to check the baby. And he, and I was like, Oh shit. Does, is there a weird thing where he, does he shoot him? And it's, he's just reaching for the kid. And then, you know, I don't want to spoil it all, but it's, you know, that, that, that is a great opening sequence, man. Uh, that an introduction to the team, right? right? The parts that they're leaning on too. If you had seen the fugitive and let's be honest here, how many people didn't see the fugitive if you're seeing this movie? Exactly. I like that moment because you're being reintroduced to this team and Newman being new to the team and the fugitive, you can tell where he and Gerard are now where, you, you know, at the end of that moment that you're talking about in the beginning of this movie, you, you, you realize that he's very much part of the team. Now he's not the new guy anymore. A lot's happened in five years and he's just as much as the part of the team as Joey pants was. Right. And I think that's really cool. And it's, it's very, and again, it's one of those few times where you're going, they're not hitting you over the head that this is, these, this is a group of people that you've been introduced to before, but the re reintroduction to them, and it's not that constant thing that you got as much as I love the series. You'd get that a lot in the, in lethal weapon three and four. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? It, it's just too much. And speaking of those movies that are produced by Joel Silver, the guy that is behind the lens on this one is a big Joel Silver guy because he directed as he's he's a camera guy, but he also directed Romeo Must Die, Exit Wounds, which I worked on, met the man on that. Andreas Barkoviak, who is the director of those movies, is the guy shooting this movie, and he does a he shoots the fuck out of this movie too. Yeah, man, dude, he certainly knows how to fucking shoot a fucking action movie. Yeah. He it does an incredible job in it. And for a movie that's 185, it still feels so big, which is crazy, right? I When I started watching it, because I don't have the Blu-ray for some fucking reason, I never bought it, but I, I rented it and it's a 185 movie. When you get to what replaces the train crash moment the beginning of the near the beginning of The Fugitive, you have a plane crash in this. And the, and I do recall seeing, having the DVD for it. That's because I remembered the, the behind the scenes anatomy of a, of a plane crash was, was part of that BTS. Yep. And boy, when this plane crash sequence is so it's, there's moments in that we talked about before we got on mic, some of the miniature work is less than desirable, um, but it's everything else. And dude, like I that set dress of the aftermath is fucking dude. Unbelievable. I mean, it, and that really helps sell the scope. I think of that shot and that, and that shot, the way it's framed and that it just literally, they, it's, that's the perfect, uh, it's the perfect meld of art department and camera to sell, you know, to, to sell the scale of, uh, what we're looking at on screen. Right. As we're introduced to Wesley Snipes in this movie, just as you know, as we get the introduction to to Richard Kimball at the beginning of The Fugitive, Kimball's a doctor, a well-respected, high-end doctor, and but we get introduced to Wesley Snipes as a to a tow truck driver who gets in an accident, and then as he's getting taken away by emergency services, somebody finds a, a handgun velcro underneath the seat. And you're like going, "Oh man, what's going on here?" Right. We're not used to seeing him in that kind of role. You see, you're already right away going, well, Wesley Snipes as a tow truck driver doesn't sound right, does it? 
He's kind of, he, yeah, exactly. It's kind of <laughs> like, well, what something, something is foul in Denmark. Yeah. And that sets up the whole thing. And, and, uh, I'm not going to say that he was the, the, where the parallels between the fugitive and us marshals is that a man is wrongfully accused. I'm not going to even say that because he's not, <laughs> he's sort of wrongfully confused. He's well, right. Exactly. That, but that's the thing, right? And I think that's really smart the way they did it yeah. because you know, he's guilty of something, but how, how, how involved is he in this? And it's a pretty, yeah. it's a pretty complex setup. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I mean, and how, what is his level from that moment where he's, you know, he's, he's being interrogated and he's claiming, I don't know any of that, you know, and you're like, okay, well, you know, song, you know, right. and, and we just go down the rabbit hole and, and they do a nice job of, you know, peeling the onion, if you will. Right. Yeah. Except for the one thing we talked about earlier, which is weirdly an editing thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And, and by the way, we talked earlier about, about Stuart Baird being the, the studio systems action movie editor. Guru. Right? He's done so many movies. But the funny thing was, out of the three movies that he directed, this is the only one that he didn't co-edit. Right. He was directly involved in executive decision and Star Trek Nemesis in the editing process. And what's interesting is how many people were involved with The Fugitive? There were seven, I think seven people involved with the editing of that. Right. Which is crazy. But for this one, there was, it was only one person assigned to, to film editing. That was Terry Rawlings and Terry, you know, Terry's Terry is a stud dude. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what, yeah, we, unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately we lost him two years ago and he was old dude. He was 85. He's a, he's another Brit and he's done some amazing work. All you need to do is just say alien blade runner, chariots of fire. <laughs> right. I'll just stop right there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, you, if you want to dig deeper, go ahead. But, you know. Yeah. And he's like Walter Murch. He's old school. Not only did he picture, but he was also supervising sound editor on a lot of the product, the productions he worked on. And you know he has an amazing support team, just like anybody. If you've ever been involved in post-production on a studio film, heck, even indies still have two assistants. Sometimes one of them working for free. On smaller movies, but on big movies like this, they probably had four or five assistants and 98, you know, Avids were brand new to, to the world. Uh, Lightworks is probably utilized. He's so old school. Terry Rawlings probably used a Lightworks system, which is more like an old flatbed type of editing system. And that's what Scorsese used to use all the time until someone says, I needed to use an Avid. Right. <laughs> this movie where it excels it's not an overly complex, even though we talk about it being a complex script, it's not overly complicated. And it's also not spoon right. fed to you either. Thank God. Nope. Not spoon fed. Not at all. That's one of the other things I love about it. Um, and, and a movie that clocks in at 131 minutes, it never no. drags. Dude. And I, when I went to watch it, I'm like going, I don't remember it being over. I thought it was like a buck 50, right? I thought it was, a, I thought it was a good felt, you know, hundred minutes, 110 minutes. I didn't, I didn't think it was right. two plus and dude, I, the amazing dedication to the, the acting craft that everybody just was all on the same page. The script is pretty damn good. And I think like I mentioned that miniature moment during the plane crash is the only thing that takes me out of the movie. And thankfully, cause that, that, I think, and again, we're big believers in practical effects and miniature work like that is something we both tout. And I think one of the reasons why it stands out so much is because when they, when they, when they intercut that stuff in the stuff that surrounds it is so fucking 
well done. Yeah. And I think that's why it stands out and, and it's jarring. You had, but you had to, you had to break up the other stuff for the sake of, of cinema. You had to break it up because it's a plane crash. You know, it's a big ass plane crashing. And if you didn't have the, the ability to extend those other shots by putting those miniatures in there, it would have felt false. Right. Yeah, it would it would have felt small. And it, yeah, I mean, there's not a you you needed those shots to get in there. And uh, here's the thing: they don't ruin the movie. Is the good news? Um, yeah. But you know, they're they're a little bit like oh, oh, you, know, you kind of look at them. You're like, hmm, yeah, okay, well, okay. Moving on. <laughs> in those moments, if for a two hour and eleven minute movie, if you took all those moments out and you put them end to end, well, they take up four, five, six, seven seconds, maybe. Right. You're talking about 48 frames or something like that. Every time you turn around, it's like two seconds. Another reason why this movie just drives. We got a score from Jerry Goldsmith again. Right, dude. I was going to say this score, man, keeps <laughs> it moving. Yeah. Damn freight train score. Jerry Goldsmith kills with these kind of scores. He just, he's, he was an amazing composer. Even for something like this, even when you're used to seeing him tied to bigger, to, to more science fiction-y, you know, type of stuff. Yeah, he kills it with this. And it's really just something else. This movie, when it came out, and we talked about before about how weird it is when you get a March release, even, in, and especially in 1998. Right. It's, it's considered a dumping ground, you know, at that point. It wasn't, you know, you're, you're not in summer mode, which you're getting at the, you know, midway, early May or something around there. This is something else. And it opened okay. It opened number two. Right. But it be you know why it, but you know why it only opened number two? Because that juggernaut was still in its three month run that was the Titanic. Yeah. Titanic was still bringing in seventeen million dollars three months after it came out. Isn't it crazy that Titanic fucking kind of ruined a few movies that we've talked about, not, you know, not, not <laughs> when I say ruined, I mean, right. It, they sucked up the money from event horizon right. and then it, it was still growing. It, it was just crushing everything, right? The ship, the, the Titanic was an iceberg to other movies. Is yes. what I'm going to say. Yeah. Across the board, whether it was directly tied to the studio. That For put years. It out. Yeah. <laughs> or it's, or, and this is the thing, dude, a, a normal movie like that. Would it still have been out? Even a hit, even a massive James Cameron hit, that movie's still not sitting in the theaters. But three months later, it's because a lot of teenage girls were going back again to see Leo. Yeah. That's why. Totally. That's why the movie made so much money. It took another James Cameron movie to knock it off the top after all those years. Right. Have a damn Avatar. Right. <laughs> Avatar. <laughs> But it did respectable money, you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't fugitive, but you know, in all fairness, like I mentioned, dude, nothing was going out in the, in that, well, gosh, how long was, no, I mean, how long was it out at that point? Titanic, it did, it, it, it has been going like seven, eight months. Doesn't it go almost a full, close to a full year, right? From its yeah, December I, release. I, and I feel like maybe this movie kind of got pushed back to March because of Titanic's success. Like, I feel like this is a movie that probably, you know, if in any normal year, this is the kind of movie you drop a sequel, you know, this is, this, this wouldn't have been a weird movie to drop at Christmas. Right. Cause that yeah. does, that did happen then perhaps this is as far as they could push it because the summer was backlogged and there was all this other, you know, I, I had to look and see what came out summer of 98 bigger, you know, but it, this movie kind of found itself dropped in March and it still grows to over a hundred million worldwide. So, I mean, it was 60 to make it right. And it did double its money, which if movies, 
uh, weren't making a hundred million dollars back then. I mean, you know, they didn't, they didn't, they weren't getting sequels. Uh, it's weird, but this one did. And I, I, you know, I guess there was just no need for a three after this one, or they just didn't know where to go with it. Or, or Tommy Lee maybe didn't, maybe Tommy Lee didn't want to do another one. Who knows? It's possible. I, I, I feel like that, you know, he was tied to a sequel and, you know, Andrew Davis being a friend and Andrew Davis not being on this one, maybe that was it for him. And at that time, you know, RDJ, he was still kind of having some troubles on and off. I can't be for sure. I mean, I think we both think this was this, his second comeback. But one thing that was always said about him when he was having those troubles and that was seemed to be making the fucking rags every week was that when he was on set, he was a fucking professional and he delivered. He was never late for set. He was on point and he did his job. And that was something that you used to hear about when he, when anytime he was in court dealing with his stuff. And I'm always on my talking about that stuff is because Hollywood loves a comeback and he's had a couple of them. And yeah, where he, where he's at now, would you have thought he would have come back from that when he was waking up in some kid's bed in Malibu? Right. Never. No. And that's why I think it's so cool is like, oh yeah, by the way, Robert Downey Jr. is in this movie. <laughs> Did we not mention that? <laughs> Right. Yeah. I know what we did. We mentioned it earlier. Yeah. I, I'm well, just being maybe. silly. I'm just yes. being silly because he, you know, you couldn't do a movie now without him, his face being on the poster. No, 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 no. Totally. I mean, look, and the thing about it too, is he kind of just falls seamlessly in with the team. Right. I yeah. mean, yeah. of course there's, you know, he's the outsider. So there is a bit of that, but there's a point where you just kind of forget about it. You, you just kind of accept him. You know, it, I think it's the moment after he picks the handcuffs, you know, which is it's set up that way. So, yeah. you're, but you know, everybody's kind of like, Oh shit. Yeah. I've never seen that before. Yeah, then, yeah. You know, everybody, but Gerard, I have. Well, he's, he's kind of like, and he gets treated by Gerard at the beginning. That's kind of like how Newman is in the beginning of the fugitive. Yeah. He's new to the team. And instead of Newman having to prove himself, he proves himself right there <laughs> just by breaking out of handcuffs, what by busting up Joey pants glasses, which is great. Yeah. That's a funny scene, man. That's yeah. the, Joey's pants reaction to that is fucking priceless. Yeah. And when did Con Air come out again? Connor came out the year uh, right before this, 97. Right. Interesting how they must have looked at Conair for <laughs> some some elements of this movie, especially when the part of the plane, the seating, the, the prisoners being shuffled yes. into the plane. I, I literally had yeah. a moment where I was like, holy fuck, it's a little it's very con air right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. And it's hard not to think about that when it's just, when it's barely a year from the previous release. I, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say, I like this movie much, much more than I like Con Air. Con Air is a comic book compared to this. Yeah, yeah. totally. And it's, nothing you know, against it. You've heard this talk about the movie. We both nope, love nothing it. Nothing against it. Yep. This is just different. I think, I think, you know what it is? Con Air is more of what we would have loved as a, as a, in junior high. It's something sure. we, and this is something yeah. we love as an adult or we think is an adult movie anyway. <laughs> right. You know, the supporting cast outside of the team, you know, everybody's good across the board. Yeah. I mean, Irene Jacob, the, the French actress who plays Marie, his uh, Wesley's uh, girlfriend who knows nothing about his past. You know, she discovers along the way, but her, her faith in her man never wavers, yeah. which was a nice, you know, was, was a nice thing. They, they, they weren't able to flip her and intimidate her, you know, um, even though there's a, there's a very funny scene with uh, <laughs> Newman and, and uh, RDJ are trying to flip her in the apartment. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and she's just like not having any of it, which I thought was great. 
I, you know, it's funny is I, 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 outside of, uh, this movie, her, like her American film career is really kind of non-existent. Yeah. We talked about that with, um, Oh yeah. Um, on power you, or, yeah. you know, I can't say yeah. blame, <laughs> but she was somebody that, that should have had a bigger career here. But I think in this week, Irene Jacobs got a, she's got a better handle on the act on the, on, on her American, on her, sorry, on her English voice, on her English speaking voice. You understand her, you know, you know, there's not a whole yes. lot of ADR going on there. Like there was with innocent blood. Right. But, and she's wonderful in it too. And I, one of the things I thought was super clever, her job, she's a barista in this at a Starbucks yeah, right? in 1998. <laughs> they didn't try to make her, they didn't try to give, yes, they didn't try to like, uh, it was, it felt real to me. Right. And we look at baristas now at Starbucks as being just this thing because there's a Starbucks in every corner, but fuck you. There was not 1998. That's for sure. No, man. They were roasting their own beans yes. and fucking, you know, Dude, grinding I, your. <laughs> I for completely forgot about them. Used to do that right, right there, and they would roast their beans. The whole place was wasn't being. It smelled like it smelled like. Uh, Dude, you made you want to drink coffee. Yeah, it smelled oh my fucking gosh. amazing. Obviously, you got a bunch of product placement by having Starbucks shoehorned in here. But man, even in Hollywood, how many Starbucks were in there at that time? Maybe I don't know. Maybe five or six. I think there was one in Burbank and one in... There was one in... Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't... Dude, just... there. It's, I know it's hard to fathom for some people because they're everywhere now. Right. You can see one Starbucks from the next Starbucks over in Studio City. You can literally stand on the port outside of the Starbucks, drink your coffee and see who's at the other Starbucks. I, I really wish like... We have, a, we have a flagship Starbucks out here in San Creta. What used to be... Burger <laughs> King, right? Burger King. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. I really wish they, on some of these stores, they would put the, the, the roasting back in there because it, I think it's something unique. I mean, cause you know how there was, you would go to Dude. like a flagship stores of some other uh, chains and they would do something unique there. Bring that shit back. Starbucks. Come on. I just think Dude, it's right? something like, cool. It's the roasting and the smell. Like when I was a kid, like, you know, cause I was probably what, 27, 28 when this movie came out. Right. But like when I, you know, when I was, when I started drinking coffee, like I, I was still going, you know, I was going to these, like there, there was a place I used to go to and over near CSUN. The name escapes me because it's been a while. But you know, the thing about them is when I first walked into the Starbucks and I was like, holy shit, dude, that's what coffee smells like. Cause that was a thing that brought people into Starbucks was the, like the experience of coming into Starbucks. Now, now it's like right. fucking running into McDonald's mostly. Right. And that's another thing too. That's what kind of sucks about it is like, you know, people look at Starbucks now and, and say, oh yeah, but the, you know, they over roast, they have, they, they burn their beans and all this stuff because they make so much of it. Now they make it in a big factory and it all gets packaged up. And like, if you go right now, like if you want to have some fresh beans, fresh roasted beans from us, from a small roaster, it'll say right on there when it was packed in a best buy date, like Stumptown or something like that. Yep. But with Starbucks, dude, it's not like that anymore. And I really feel like, um, for like, for, for us, like we both go to a place, a small little group called the Bodai Tea Leaf. And it's one of our, I think mean, that's, that's the first place that we, you and I ever got together to talk about the podcast yeah, was, totally. was at Bodai. Mm -hmm. And everybody there is kick ass, just like it was back with Starbucks back in the day. And they roast their own beans and they do everything right there. That's, that's the kind of thing that they need to bring back. And I think it's why the going to Bodai is so enjoyable. And plus they have kick ass coffee. They're really, and plus, like I said, they're sweethearts. 
And everybody's nice at Starbucks. I'm not trying to say anybody's nice at Starbucks, but well, the turnover there, the turnover there is so much greater now. And it's not nearly the same right. experience. Yeah. I mean, and back in the day, like just, I was totally reminded by this. It didn't seem so corporate either, right? Like it, it's, you know, it was, it was a job, right? It was, she was there, she was making, and it wasn't weird that she was, you know, a 30 year old woman working at, you know, it wasn't like, Oh no, you know, cause now you, I mean, most of the kids at the Starbucks I go, it's, you know, they're, I'm going to say they're, they're early twenties. It didn't, but it doesn't seem weird when you look back at it and you're seeing her and she's probably 30, you know, and she's an artist. And I mean, it, it would make sense. She would work at a place. That's a kind the kind of place where she, cause she's in the country illegal. They, they cover all that. But I, I, it's funny. I didn't remember the Starbucks, the no. whole thing about it. I, I, I was just like, when, when they, uh, when that, when it, when you get to the scene, I was like, holy shit, is she worked at Starbucks. Yeah. And then I was like, oh yeah. But then all those memories, like we just talked about came flooding back to me. Yeah. Uh, dude, you know, who's in this movie and I, I got to mention him because I love him is uh Michael Paul Chan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. I forgot that Michael Paul Chan is the bag man. I wish he, I wish the dude was in more stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, he's up and he's going to be 71 this year. But dude, he's dope. I mean, the first thing I ever saw him in, I mean, for me, where I started remembering him was the Goonies. Sure. That's where I kind of, that's where I kind of remember. But as I got older and started watching more movies, and then that's when I saw him in Michael Mann's Thief. And of course, he's in Falling Down. Anytime he shows up, Quicksilver, who, which we, yeah, Quicksilver is what we talk about. We, we, but we, we talk about off mic, but we, We've never talked never, about it yeah. on Mike, did we? This is the first time I've talked about it, I think. Uh, we'll do it when we do our Kevin Bacon, seven, <laughs> no, seven our, degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> no, we're going to do our bicycle movies, American Flyer, Quicksilver. Uh, what's the other one? What's the Breaking Kevin? Away. <laughs> the bicycle movies. Rip, Riptide Rush, or whatever the fuck it's called. <laughs> What the, the David Kett movie? Purple Crush Rush with yeah. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh. <laughs> What is it called? Purple Rain? I don't remember. Uh, I don't remember. It doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. We'll get to it one day. The <laughs> Unicyclist. Michael Paul Chan, dude. I, like, like uh, the guy just shows up and he always, you know, he uh, he brings something to every movie. You know, fall like you said, falling down, the Goonies. He's in Spy Game. I mean, you know, he's a face. And, I, I you know, he was on The Closer forever. Yeah. Like that, you know, that's where he, you know, fi- finally landed a, you know, landed a, landed that gig where all that hard work and showing up in, you know, all these big movies was finally rewarded. And, you know, he got his payday. Right. And also, since you mentioned the closer, he came back to play the same role, Lieutenant Lau in major crimes. Yes. Which I dude, Yeah. He's anybody that doesn't like Michael Paul Chan. Doesn't just, like movies. I don't like you. <laughs> <laughs> You're terrible. You get super excited when he shows up, no matter how big his role is in it. And he's in right. this a lot. He's in it a lot. Oh, yeah. And dude, he carries a quiet intensity that, you know, he doesn't have to talk all the time. You know, he can say more with that fucking smile and that fucking wry grin than, you yeah. know, than a writer could write on 10 pages. Yeah. He's, yeah, he's exceptional. I wish we'd see him in, in more stuff. And I, and I know, unfortunately, he's like, you get to a certain age and uh, you just don't get called on very much. And he could just be like chilling, you know, for all we know. I mean, he... He did come back for that MacGyver reboot. Right. Great. Good for him, man. I think he's an exceptional actor and we need to see more of him in there. Yeah, man. Anytime you get to see a Chinese American actor or a Japanese American actor or Korean American actor get more work, the better. And, you know, you got to, we got to continue that kind of thing. But he's, 
I love the fact, yes, he, he's part of the Chinese consulate in there. I mean, so it is, he's being cast as a very specific role, but when they be talking about the closer and major crimes, uh, he's doesn't, he's just playing a Brooklyn dude. South. I mean, yeah. dude. Yeah. It, it, uh, he's just one of my favorite character actors. Yeah. He always brings something that's not on the page right. to his characters. And I just always appreciated that about his work. And that's why I just wanted to say, you know, I, I didn't want to not mention him because I totally forgot he was in the movie because I haven't seen it in so long, but you know, there he was. And I was like, Holy shit, that's right. You know? So, Hey, there you go. That's why I tossed that out because we shouldn't just talk about the the leads, you know, cause right. there's, you know, there's guys like, Michael Paul that just do a lot of the heavy lifting and they, and they do the dirty work in these kind of movies. Right. And uh, you know, sometimes people just don't talk about it, but yeah, I, I love him in everything. I I saw some reviews of this when we were kind of prepping for the episode and I I recall some of them and and I'm always really big on not reading reviews until after I've seen the movie, because I want to hear somebody's interpretation of it. So when I kind of talk about it with somebody else, I can kind of make an amalgam of my opinion and maybe some of the wording that I hear from us. This not Moose movie was not well received by critics. And, and I don't understand why, but one of the things I was seeing more than once convoluted was what I heard about the script. I'm like, no, it's, it's, a, it's a little dense and there's a lot going on, but hardly hard to follow. Yeah. And when I hear someone says a convoluted script to me, that says you don't, you had a hard time following it. I'm like, what do you, what the fuck dude? So because Stuart Baird and the entire production team decided that they're not going to take a straight line on something and you have a, you can't follow it. Look to quote the New York times, a movie that knows how to pace its audience watching it is like going for a long and satisfying jog. I mean, that that's kind of what, yeah, yeah that's I mean, fair. I'm with that. that's fair. I, I do. I, I have no problem with that. I mean, it really is. It gets your heart rate up for, you know, two hours. It's like, a, it's like a nice session of cardio. Yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day, I wasn't disappointed in any of it, the execution, the right. ending, uh, you know, it's funny. We, I don't want to say it because I don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it. But you know, when you get to the ending, I, like, like I had asked you off mic, did you forget? Right. Because it's one of those things I was like, yeah, I think that's how it's panning out. I, hmm. You know, and then there's, there's a nice moment before and I'm like, oh man, maybe I just misremembered And then, nope, 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 nope. A, a well-crafted, well-made two-hour action movie, which we don't get a lot of anymore. No, and we're never, we're not going to get anything on the scale anymore either. Um, one of the things that was, I wanted to point out to you about the scale of the movie is there's very little blue and green screen. There's very little stage work in this other than, you know, office building and internals and office buildings that might be a build that might be a set. I can't be sure. Of course, they're all over the place in Illinois, of course, Chicago mainly, but then they're also in some smaller cities, but they're also in Kentucky. They're in New York, which you see quite a bit toward in the third act. And they shoot a lot in Tennessee, which is, Oh yeah. The, the, this again, what helps sell a movie like this are those location shoots Right. And it's not like they, they shoot a bunch of exteriors and then they cut to a soundstage. No, oh, no, no, no. Not like that at all. Because this movie doesn't, you you feel the scope. That's what I'm seeing. That moment after the plane crash, right, where they're having that moment, RDJ is like with them and he does the whole getting out of the handcuffs thing. That whole bit, doesn't it, even though it's 185, doesn't it feel wider at that moment? It's just the way it's framed and everything. And 
the movie feels bigger than it is as far as those moments in frame. And it's just such a well-shot movie. You're working with guys like Tommy Jones and Snipes and RDJ and Joey Pants. Everybody knows where to stand. Yes. Everybody knows how to how to hold themselves. Everybody is well-versed on what, you know, what lens is being used. So they know what part of their their head, their chest, their just just their being is going to be framed. And I think that's so important when it comes to movies at all. Not movies like this, but I mean movies at all. Oh, yeah. I'm with you. The actors understand what lenses are being used. Um, Kevin Smith told a story once when he was working on Cop Out with with uh, Bruce Willis. And I'm not going to get into that, that bullshit, but Kevin Smith at that point didn't know his lenses. He didn't know what a 50 mil was going to do. He didn't know what, he didn't know anything. He would just go like, Bruce Willis says, well, what lens are you going to use? Because Bruce Willis is well-versed on that stuff. He, he right. knows how he's going to look and how he's going to be framed based on the lens choice. So he, he knows how to perform. Well, he, Kevin Smith didn't, didn't know that and he got ridiculed for it. And I, and I go, good. I mean, I understand why you don't know it in, in Clerks. Sure. I understand why maybe you don't know in Mallrats, but when you get to Cobb Out, <laughs> your first studio movie, right. and only studio with- movie, you should know that shit. But that's where you got pros like these guys. And it's... Yeah, man. This this movie deserves so much more attention than it's than it's gotten. And it's one of my favorite movies. And I, I, saw, I saw a criticism on there saying that it's enjoyable, but forgettable. And I guess, I guess it's kind of, uh, that's, that's I think it's kind fair. Of fair. I think it's, I think it's fair, but I'm glad it's forgettable. I'm glad there's moments that I forgot right. because I got to revisit again and go, fuck yeah, this movie's so good. Right. Because the rewatchability is higher for me for movies that I watch. And then I, you know, if, if I can remember every single frame of the movie, then what's the point of watching it again? Right. I mean, I kind of liked, I, I loved re-exploring this cause I hadn't watched it I mean, I bought the DVD probably in 2000, I would imagine. And, right. you know, I think I watched it maybe once then. And then, you know, I watched it this morning. So I want to say this on, in closing. If there's one reason and one reason alone you see this movie, it's because Tommy Lee Jones has never looked better in yellow tights. <laughs> in, a, in a chicken suit? <laughs> in a chicken suit. Oh, so good. Yeah, man. It's great. And, and Ogre from Revenge of the Nerds, I always knew you were going to be a bastard. You're dirty. You're a dirty, you're dirty man. motherfucker. <laughs> it's so funny. Cause I was when he, when you're watching him at the beginning and, and he's getting in a fight with everybody, he's not using a stand in dude. <laughs> no, dude. He's the, you know, look, he's coming off a of blood sport. He's fucking whooping some ass. <laughs> he's just killing. It's just so good. After, he, got, after he flunked out of college, you know, he, he traveled the world and, <laughs> you know, we thought he was dead from the uh, underground fighting in, uh, in the Orient, but no, he was in Chicago dealing math. That was such a weird thing about blood sport, dude. I'm like going, what the fuck is ogre doing? This yeah. Movie? Right. What? <laughs> Oh shit! Long oh, before shit. the before ogre gets turned, right? Don't they, don't oh. they turn him in the second movie? Don't they? Yes. Yeah. Second, second movie. Yeah. Nerds in Paradise. This is a movie that you want to watch. That's it. I, I, we we rarely say that. We're just watch this movie because you know what? There's a good chance you haven't seen it, and if you have seen it, it's been a while since you've seen it, right? And you're gonna get a chance to enjoy it again, like we did, and relish in that. Jerry Goldsmith score relish in the the beautiful images you see in this and the cast dude there's not a stale performance in this entire movie no 
it's it's great, dude. It's really a, a fun time. And, and see Robert Downey Jr. before he becomes Iron Man. Tony Stark. Yeah. <laughs> and we're a long way from that. We're, you know, we're what, 10 years. At least. We're 10 years, 98. Yeah, uh, 2008. Right. 2008, yeah. right. Yeah. 10 years away. Can see him shaping. You can see him shaping that. Uh, you, know, yeah. you know, there's there's a little there's a, there's there's some Starkisms in there. Yes, for sure. Anytime you see him with sunglasses, right, you're ready to, ready to go. Yep, take the sunglasses off. You, everybody that's in this movie, you haven't seen them give a better performance. No, it's either equal to or or on par of anything else they've ever done. And everybody's again see this movie. Yeah, unfortunately, it's not streaming anywhere right now. But throw the two, the three bucks towards the, you know, a prime rental or an iTunes rental or whatever. It, it, you're gonna enjoy it. And uh, Stuart Bear, like I said, he's done three movies. I can honestly say, I do not remember anything about Star Trek Nemesis other than I don't want to watch it again. This is the best of the three for sure. Oh yeah. The other two, I you know there's moments in both. I would, I would imagine, I, like I said, I don't remember Nemesis either. Yeah. Uh, you know, Executive <laughs> Decision has the best use of Steven Seagal ever. Uh, I will say that for it. And um, yeah, that's it, man. Uh, U.S. Marshals. U.S. Marshals. So if you want to follow us on social media, you can follow the show on Twitter at Karate Pod, or if you want to follow Corey on Letterboxd, it's Corey underscore Cope. Or if you'd like to support the show on Patreon, thank you, Patreon supporters. That's patreon.com slash KITG podcast. If you'd like to follow me, you can follow me at Letterboxd under Tom Cody meets Sam Gerard. <laughs> no, 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 yes, no, uh, no, just Tom Cody. Gerard.